Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Well, by now we've all heard that expression, cancel culture. Cancel culture is a collaborative effort to damage or destroy the reputation, the platform, or even the livelihood of someone who has violated a particular ideological standard in the public arena. One of the primary places you see cancel culture playing out is on university campuses. Students protest to either keep a certain speaker from making it onto campus, thus canceling their speech, or at least they work to disrupt their talk so that there can't be any discussion about what they were lecturing about, their ideas. You may have observed this as well. The idea of the way different people have responded to the threat of being canceled. You, you, you hear these things in the news, you might even see it in your own life, or you might know people around you that have been canceled, and you, you've watched the different ways that people respond to the threat. The most common way people seem to respond to the threat of being canceled is with an apology. And something like, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't understand how hurtful I was being. And this apology, of course, is exactly what the mob wants. That's the goal. The, apologi- the apologizer has genuflected now to their ideology and has been neutered. Threat neutralized. But cancel culture, we shouldn't make this mistake. Cancel culture doesn't really work. Not really. When someone stands up to cancel culture, it kind of backfires. When someone stands up to cancel culture, they end up with friends and supporters they didn't know they had. When someone stands up to cancel culture, they bring definition, and they force people to think. They force them to actually think and to consider their ideas. No, humans really don't have the ability to truly cancel other people or cancel anything. Remember what uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, there's much more going on beyond the physical realm right now, right? And therefore, people do not actually, do not really have the ability to cancel other people. But God, now there's someone with a true ability to cancel, the power to cancel. What God cancels is over and done. By the glorious grace of God... God's ability of true cancellation is not limited to the rebellious, like you see in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. By the way, he's teaching his followers in that passage to stand up to persecution, to not fear being canceled by the mob or by the religious rulers. No, our Lord, our God, uses His powers of cancellation for the good of His people, for our good. If you trust Him, then for your good, for your good. And here's our text for today. It's just one amazing, breathtaking verse. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that not remarkable? Is that not remarkable? The simplicity, the precision, and yet the comprehensiveness of this reality changes everything for the Christian. This statement changes our entire worldview, our entire perspective, our entire experience. It changes our understanding of ourselves and of the world around us. It changes every single thing. Condemnation for the Christian is over and done. God has canceled it. And it changes life for us. And it's why I'd like to propose this morning that you and I should be at peace, dear Christian. Be at peace. Your condemnation is canceled. And you can keep that single verse open in your Bible in front of you because we're going we're gonna, to, we want to keep that right in front of us today, that single verse. We're going to break this out into three parts. First, let's consider this concept of condemnation. Condemnation. Have you ever felt Condemned. Have you felt it? You know, you did something and now you think people are looking down on you, judging your abilities as lacking. It could be something as simple as, as doing something forgetful, like losing your keys or procrastinating on your homework or thinking that hyperbole is pronounced hyperbole, <laughs> which I did one time. And then consequently feeling ashamed, exposed, stupid, and or unliked by the other pastors in the room. <laughs> Named Stephen Doug. Or maybe there is something really unrighteous in your past. And you feel that when people look at you now, they're judging your character. And you know how this goes. They might not even know, but you feel, you feel condemned. Maybe you feel lesser, or you feel dirty, or you feel unworthy, or unwanted, or unaccepted, and it feels like condemnation. And these may describe some of the feelings that go along with condemnation, and it's telling that when we talk about the feelings of condemnation, there's a particular word that we really can't get away from, or, or, or phrase that we really can't get away from. It's always connected. That word is judge, or feeling judged. I feel judged. Condemnation and judgment go together. When we feel condemned, we feel judged. We feel judged by other people. And now, and at times, we feel judged by God. And we use that word because it is inherently connected to the concept of condemnation. You see, condemnation is more than a feeling. In fact, it's really not the feeling. That's that's a, 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 it's connected to a reality. Condemnation is primarily an objective status. And that, the, the words condemn and condemnation in the Old and New Testaments essentially mean probably what you would think they mean. They, they mean to declare wrong and to judge one down uh, and the sentence of a judge the word used in our passage that's translated into English condemnation is a strong reference to divine judgment against sin. Essentially, the word being used here is legal terminology. So it's less about what you subjectively, what you feel inside, and more about your status. When a crime has been committed and the law broken, 
investigation may lead to formal charges being levied against the defendant. And this is not the status of condemnation yet. There is accusation, but not condemnation, not yet. Litigation, or the legal process, advances from there. You have accusation. You have a crime committed. You have accusation. Here comes the legal process or the litigation. That litigation culminates in a verdict, a result, a ruling, a decision. And that verdict is either vindication or acquittal or exoneration or it's condemnation. Vindication or condemnation is a declaration about the defendants, or in our cases, our participation in whatever we'd been accused of. To be condemned then is to be liable or responsible. It's to be accountable to punishment. To be liable is to, is to become accountable to the punishment for the condemnation. It is the declaration of guilt. Condemnation is the declaration of guilt. And to be condemned is to have that punishment then applied. It belongs to you. You're, you're, you're under the status of, of needing, of justly being punished. And it includes the application of that punishment. That's what it means to be condemned. It's when you have to pay the fine or have a protective order against your movements or do the community service or go to jail, etc., etc., whatever the judge meets out as the punishment for the condemnation. Now, if you, were condem- if you were condemned in a court, you would have many feelings inside of you. But the feelings come in response to the objective status of being condemned or declared guilty. F.F. F. Brutes points out a helpful nuance in understanding condemnation and the application of that punishment. He talks about the idea of penal servitude. Someone who's under the condemnation and having the punishment applied to them and thereby walking in that reality. So imagine a prisoner in jail. Inmates in the U.S. prison system still have rights. It's probably the best prison system in the world. I mean, maybe, but it seems like it's got to be up there in the top few, right? But nevertheless, those rights are greatly diminished. It's not like people want to go to jail. Jail's not a nice place, a good place, even in the United States. Think of a prisoner who has the job, has been given the job of doing the laundry. They probably don't have much of a choice. It's not that they feel like doing it. It's not that they're doing it because it's for their own household, their own family members, because they want to look nice to go to work the next day. It's not, they're not doing it for that reason. They don't have much of a choice. It's the chore they've been given. This is what they're doing day after day, week after week, month after month, maybe year after year. I know some moms feel this way. But it's not quite the same. That is penal servitude. And it's part of being in the status or under the status of condemnation. They're walking. And you, you kind of get a sense like, okay, 
I just had to do this. They just, they just bear the weight of it. They bear the burden of it. There's not much of a, of a positive trade-off for them. It's not like it's worth the compensation that they're going to get. It's just what they're doing. Penal servitude. Now, before we move on, let's consider where condemnation comes from. Paul writes a good deal about how people end up condemned in the chapters prior to Romans chapter 8. In the earlier chapters, he writes to both Jews and Gentiles. He was Jewish, but was deeply familiar with Gentile thinking. And so he's able to write to both groups very clearly, very helpfully. And what he says to both groups is this. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Think about these words, phrase upon phrase, piled upon each other. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. A few verses down, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, this is a verdict. It's a declaration of guilt. Not on one people group, not on a few individual people across people groups. It's a declaration of guilt upon the entire human race. Paul's actually quoting the Old Testament writers and prophets here, and he's saying that this is what God is saying about all humanity. It doesn't matter if they're very religious like the Jews It doesn't matter if they rank pagans like the Gentiles were, like most of humanity. From the very religious to the most worldly, people are not righteous in the sight of God. They are rebellious before God. They do not regard, let alone revere, the God over all. And so God declares humanity condemned. That is the objective state of the human race. Under the declaration of condemnation of God in penal servitude with the final sentencing coming on a day in the future. Remember that passage from Matthew 10 where Jesus said not to fear those who can kill the body. Instead, Jesus says, fear the one who can kill body and soul in hell. And yet here is this declaration in Romans 3.18 that there is no fear of God before the eyes of humanity. And let's be honest with ourselves. How often do we go through the day without any orientation to God? How many decisions do we make in a given day where it didn't even occur to us? How about the choices we make in life? How about the sins we have willfully committed knowing that God does not bless that, that God, it is not righteous before him, that it is rebellion against him, and yet we do it anyway. How about after we sin and we we look back at that sin and we try to justify it? How often have we done that? That's the whole idea. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So where does condemnation come from? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from God. It comes from the one true judge, God the Almighty. And it comes because humanity has been tried in his court. And the verdict has been reached. And that verdict has been condemnation. 
But hold on now, hold on. There's reason for peace because your condemnation, dear Christian, is canceled. Your condemnation is canceled. Condemnation is an objective status. Now, let's see if we can get rid of it, right? So, first we looked at condemnation. Now, let's look at condemnation canceled. Condemnation canceled. Probably the best thing we can do right now is put that very Scripture back up in front of us. Let the declaration shine forth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've talked about what condemnation is and where it comes from so that we can grasp what is being said to us, what is being promised to us here so that we can apply it in our lives. You see, if condemnation is less about something we feel and more about an objective status before God, then we can learn to have that reality inform our lives and shape our feelings. And we're not alone in needing to do this. When Paul wrote this passage, he was inspired to put the word therefore in there. In other words, what he's writing about, about the, when he talks about the cancellation of condemnation in Romans 8.1, he's doing that based on what came before Romans 8.1. Well, what, what came before? Look at Romans chapter 7, verses 21 to 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Do you see how conflicted the Apostle Paul is? Do you see how he wrestles within himself? Do you see the ongoing, emotionally painful, sorrowful for sin, but the triumph of looking up to see Jesus there? Do you see the conflict? You see, Christians are not a people devoid of any inner turmoil. We're not just people that, that we have nothing going on inside us. Every day is sunshine and flowers. Every day is the first day of spring, which I believe today is the first day of spring, isn't it? Right? Maybe not? I don't know. Okay, thank you. Someone knows the calendar here. Thank you. That's not the way life is for Christians all the time inside of us. No, we wrestle, we fight, we struggle. And in doing so, we come again and again to the end of ourselves, to the, to the realization of our brokenness, to the true state of, of who we are in ourselves. And in coming to the end of ourselves, we look up again and again and again, and we see him there, the one who made an end to all our sin. That's who a Christian is. You see, it's the very fact that the Holy Spirit of God 
resides in you, that Jesus walks with you by the Spirit, which is why your flesh battles with Him, which is why you have this turmoil. That's a good sign, brother and sister, when you wrestle and struggle and have some turmoil like the Apostle Paul and then look up and you say, oh, thanks be to God because of Jesus Christ, my Lord. When Paul writes the therefore in Romans 8.1, he is referring to his own wrestling with sin or the flesh. He's referring to his wrestling with the flesh. But he's also referring to this, the objective reality of the end of our condemnation. And so in all his wrestling, he always comes back to the reality that there is no condemnation for him. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he had written about this earlier. This is part of the therefore as well. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here is how there is now no condemnation. Here is how it is canceled. The Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, paid for sin with his life. By dying on the cross. That happened. It was an event in history. A day, a long time ago. Jesus, the Son of God, went to the cross. Died on the cross. And when he died, everyone who trusts him lives. And that's what this means when it says we have been justified by faith. If we trust Him, if we believe in Him, if we have faith in Him, then we are justified in Him. In In other words, the judge does not pronounce a verdict of condemnation over us. The judge pronounces over us a verdict of vindication because of Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think of it. Every accusation against you disintegrates and has no standing. The judge points and declares you justified or righteous. Condemnation has been merited, but then it has been canceled once and for all. When you look at the verse up there on the screen, do you see the word now? Notice that word now. It's an important word. It makes this present tense, not just long ago. It means that our no condemnation state, our status, it's ongoing. And this is important because we're often tempted to view our declaration of righteousness, the declaration of righteousness that God has spoken over us, that the judge has declared over us. We were tempted to view that as something that happened when we first came to Christ, but then since we first came to Christ, we, since then we've sinned, and so that declaration no longer applies. It's not present. It's only past. And if it's not present, it can't be future. And some of us have a, a, a working thought of the way God's grace has worked to us and His declaration of vindication over us has worked in us. We, we think of it this way. When we first came to Christ, we received that declaration of vindication. And then we sinned, but that wasn't too bad. And so it still worked. It still lasted. But then we kept sinning, and it no longer counts. It has a, 
a shelf life. It, it runs out. My dear brothers and sisters, for those who are in Christ Jesus, right now, for those who trust Him, in this moment and in every moment to come, there is for you no condemnation. God has spoken over you. It is once and for all. It was then. It is now. It will be. It is a word of vindication. You are declared righteous. You are not under penal servitude. You are not condemned. Not in God's court of law. I've been watching some old shows. Maybe some of you remember a show from the 1970s called The Rockford Files. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I've been watching these. I watched a few of these and the background they give to Jim Rockford is, it's quite interesting. He's an ex-con. So he spent five years in prison for something he didn't do, but eventually he receives a full pardon and that's how he gets released from jail. So he had spent five years in jail as a convict, but he gets pardoned. And the problem is that wherever he goes, his status dogs him. He's free. He's out. He's got his own private investigation business. But people continually bring up the fact that he had been in prison and assume that he has bad character. People try to use it against him. And he has to live with the stigma of being an ex-convict. At one time he had this declaration of condemnation over him which has now been removed. But other people keep accusing him and saying he should live under that status. And actually, Rockford, he, he's actually a decent example of how, uh, of how we should be because he doesn't let the perspective of others keep him down. He knows he was innocent. He knows he's free. He knows his rights. And he's intent on living in the good of those things. And if someone calls him an ex-con, he doesn't like it, but he doesn't let it affect his view of life. The difference, of course, in our lives and in the Christian life, is that we were not innocent. We were guilty. We did deserve the verdict of condemnation. But the truth is even better than anything for Rockford. The condemnation's been taken away. It's been canceled. And instead, we get the verdict of vindication. And that verdict of condemnation remains away and it's not coming back and it doesn't matter if the devil accuses you and it doesn't even matter if your own heart doubts you say to the devil you say to your own heart that's tempted to sin you say I belong to Jesus and I will trust him and I will do so as long as I walk this earth. And you remain in Him and you have the verdict of vindication over you. There is therefore no, now, no condemnation. How glorious. Yes, it is glorious. But what about when we do sin? When we do sin, shouldn't we feel shame? Shouldn't we feel guilt? Well, yes, in a sense, we should. 
But even then, it should always be within the reality of knowing the mercy of God, the forgiveness of sin, and the removal of the judge's pronouncement of condemnation over us. You're not going to hell. You'll be with the Lord. The well-known Welsh minister from the early mid-1900s, Martin Lloyd-Jones, sought to help us understand how to think of our sin now as those never facing condemnation. And no illustration is perfect. I don't think his illustration is perfect, but I I think this is helpful. Uh, Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing the laws of the state and a husband who has done something he should not do in his relationship with his wife. He is not breaking the law. He is wounding the heart of his wife. Uh, That's the difference. It is no longer a legal matter, not to be tried in court. It is a matter of personal relationship and love. The man does not cease to be the husband legally in this instance. Law does not come into the matter at all. In a sense, it is now something much worse than a legal condemnation. I would rather, Jones writes, I would rather offend against a law of the land objectively outside of me than hurt someone whom I love. In that case, you have sinned, of course, but you have sinned against love. That's the phrase he uses. You've sinned against love. So you may and you should feel ashamed but you should not feel condemned. Can we make that distinction? I think, we, I think we can. I think we must. Because to do so, you should not feel cond- condemnation because to do so is to put yourself back under the law. Yes, when we sin against God, we are aware of the lack of gratitude toward God, the failure to worship the God that deserves and, and is owed our worship. We are aware of the missed opportunity to access the grace that's available in the Son that was being given to us. We regret that. And we recognize, when we sin, we recognize how far we are from the image of the Son as yet that He's conforming us into. And these things break our hearts, rightly so, but we're far from being without hope, right? Right? Because even at these times, we also know that the formal legal infraction, it's already been taken care of. It's being taken care of. It's taken care of. There is no condemnation. And we will not face destruction. We will only face the loving discipline of our Lord who is always molding us into His image so that we can shine with a face like the sun that brings Him the glory that we want to give Him in our lives. And that is a hopeful thought that springs forever and never leaves us. Don't let it leave you. Be at peace, Christian. Your condemnation is canceled. Third, and finally, let's look at condemnation canceled for the Christ united. We've looked at what condemnation is, what it, what it is, where it comes from. We looked at the idea of condemnation being canceled. Now let, let's look at condemnation canceled for the Christ unified. 
And when I write the Christ unified, I simply mean for those who are united to Christ. The gift of our union with Christ is one of the greatest blessings of having Jesus, of being a Christian. You see, our religious experience, the Christian religious experience, is to go beyond just imitating what Jesus does. It's not simply what would Jesus do. We don't simply ask ourselves, okay, what would Jesus do? I'll do that in this moment. It includes the imitation of Christ, but it goes beyond that. It certainly recognizes and bases our lives upon what Jesus has already done. But it even goes beyond that. You see, you and I, if we have Christ Jesus, if we've trusted Him, we actually experience, we truly experience the risen Christ indwelling our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. He's with us. And this is why, for example, we wrestle with sin, like Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. We're not just okay with sin when we sin. We feel the guilt of it. It nags at us. We wrestle with it. That happens because the Lord Jesus is united with us. We're unsettled by our own sin. We take it to the Lord. This doesn't happen because we're intrinsically righteous and we have such a fine-tuned conscience, but because we are united with Christ. That's one thing. Being united with Christ also means that in our spirits we died, we were buried, and we rose with him to a new life, the very thing that baptism demonstrates. We are new creatures in Christ, and this is the absolute condition of having the condemnation for our God completely, utterly, and ultimately removed, ultimately canceled. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are unified with Christ. We're in union with Him. There is no other way to have your condemnation canceled except to be unified with Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the great English Baptist preacher from the 1800s, said that he saw in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, a refutation of the old serpent's gospel said like only he would say it, a refutation of the old serpent's gospel. Do you see what he means by that, the old serpent's gospel? I'll read it for you, what, what he wrote about this. He wrote this, the serpent's gospel, say you, what is that? It is another name for the gospel of modern thought, that gospel which casts a doubt upon the threatenings of the law and even denies them altogether. Quite the first few words of the text rather quote the first few words of the text and stop there. And this false gospel is before you. There is therefore now no condemnation. The serpent promulgated this gospel in the Garden of Eden when he said, you shall not surely die. With what greediness our first parents received that highly advanced teaching which contradicted the declaration of God, thou shalt surely die. The doctrine of no punishment for any man is popular at this day and threatens 
to have even greater sway in the future. He wrote that about 200 years ago. Oh, how right he was. The very notion of a God who will judge the world based on who he is is derided and mocked, if not simply ignored today. You see, many people proclaim the notion of no condemnation. A lot of people like to say that. But we should ask those people, as I may ask you today, based upon what? Based upon what is there no condemnation? And maybe you do need to ask yourself that question this morning, and I'm very serious about that. Maybe there are those here that need to ask themselves a question, on what are you basing your guilt-free life? What you think is guilt-free. If you have not trusted Christ Jesus and have simply assumed that you have no condemnation to face, I'm asking you based on what? Consider this. If you claim to hold any form or system of morality, consider this. If you assert that there is right and wrong at any level, then you are implicitly asserting that there is a higher court somewhere that has established those principles, those virtues. You are claiming that virtue, if you claim any morality, you are claiming that virtue and morality is transcendent and universal. And therefore, there must be at some place, in some way, there must be ultimate enforcement for that virtue. There must be a judge who can dole out condemnation or vindication. And if that is the case, if there is a judge who will do that, upon what do you base your own vindication? You know how this works in the world today? People think to themselves, I'm a good person. And more and more you see people virtue signaling with a very, in, a, in a very convenient way. They, they tend to virtue signal what the popular society at large tells them is virtuous. That's kind of convenient, right? Oh, that's virtuous. Guess what? I do that so much. I do that more than anyone else. I, I'm, I, I do that so much more than you that you, you're dirty in comparison to how virtuous I am. That's how the world works with its virtue signaling. If you're basing your own vindication on your track record of goodness, then may God have mercy on your soul because you're not fooling anyone. You know the wicked thoughts you've had. You know the lies you've told. You know the ways you've cheated. And you know what you've stolen. And you see, if you continue to insist on your own vindication based on your own track record, your virtue signaling, then you have, a lot, you have to do a lot of faking in life. And you're walking around, your life is fraudulent. And that's just painful. You're a play actor. Your whole life is making pretend. That's pathetic. It's a prison. It's no way to live. Now hear me. Christ Jesus wants to set you free. Christians, we don't pretend to be completely virtuous or entirely righteous. We freely admit that we have been shot through with sin. And we wrestle with it. 
But then we look up and we trust Christ Jesus and it's on the basis of our union with Him that we know we are no longer under condemnation. That is the basis that gives me the confidence that the judge has declared over me, over you, vindication, justification. This is the only way. Jesus is the only way to escape condemnation. And today is the day, maybe the only day, today is the day to trust Him. Dear friend, do not trust the serpent's gospel. Base your hope for a declaration of vindication on the righteous one who gave his life for you. On Jesus the Savior, there is no condemnation for those in him. Be at peace, Christian. Your condemnation is canceled. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.